Good morning. Well, we are in a setting on a Sunday morning which is post-Thanksgiving, but simultaneously it is pre-Advent. It's a, a rather unique Sunday. This happens every once in a while. And so as I was looking at the calendar roughly uh, close to a year ago, pondering, okay, build a bridge between post-Thanksgiving and Advent, what do we do? And my mind came across a passage of scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which this morning we're going to entitle uh, A Christmas Creed. And I'd love for you to be able to turn there. Three verses is all that we are going to examine this morning. This is written by Paul to the pastor in the church of Ephesus. The book of Ephesians tied to Ephesus. Well, the pastor of Ephesus was Timothy. And Timothy had been mentored, discipled by the apostle Paul. And now what we find is what the apostle is about to do is this. In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he has gone out of his way to explain the role of an elder, followed by the role of a deacon. And now it's almost as if he's saying, in light of what I've just shared, I want to very succinctly phrase things in such a way that I'll be able to offer some memorable truths that can be communicated to the congregation in such a way that can be memorized, in such a way that can be recalled easily. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to refer to it as the Christmas Creed. 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, the creed itself is found in, in verse 16. And here Paul writes these words, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, buttress, the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And here it comes for you and for me. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's worth memorizing, mastering, because I think Paul must have taken some time to be able to phrase this in a way that would have lasting impact upon the minds of the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And so we're going to explore these three verses together. But first, we're going to look to our Lord together in prayer. So, Father, we're thanking you now for days gone by, praying that the time of thanksgiving ministered to hearts, refreshed, maybe calmed the spirit, allowed each and every one to start reflecting upon who you are, upon what you've done, 
not thinking so much upon what is owed to us, but rather what we owe to you. And then coming to this firm realization that what you have done graciously is to send Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. And it's an overwhelming thought. It addresses the person's questions such as, where did I come from? Why am I here? When I look at this world, what went wrong? How can things be fixed? Where does all this lead? The critical questions that bounce off each other in our minds and our hearts but have a settled resolution when we look into your word. Your word has a way of stabilizing our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions. We become centered as we think about the one in control, the one who's sovereign over the universe, the one who gets personally involved in our in our most challenging issues. The one who sent Jesus to die for our sins. Father, as in the prior service and now in this one, for those that are watching online, so thankful they're doing this. Meet us at our point of need. And you know what our needs are. You know what keeps us awake at night. You know what weighs on our minds during the day and tires our souls in the evening. But the tireless one, the sovereign one who does not need to sleep, restore himself. Why, you can do work without expending energy. And we're awed. And we're asking now that in our worship, as we open up your word, your word meets us at our point of need. So, Father, whether a person's coming spiritually curious or not, watching online as a perhaps a religious unbeliever or a secular unbeliever, but is intellectually hungry to grapple with the big issues of life, I pray, Lord, that they will take very seriously the one who is the author of life and begin to think seriously about you and put faith and trust in Jesus. For, Father, these moments are important. So we're asking now in the moments to come that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, as again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen.
What captures your attention when you read verse 16 is that you and I are called to confess the mystery of godliness. And this word mystery is a significant word in Ephesus and a significant word to Paul. He writes extensively about it in Ephesians chapter 3, his book to the Ephesians. Mystery. It was a mystery in Israel, Coca-Cola. For you see, Coca-Cola wanted to be able to extend its reach into Israel, both Arabs and Jews, to have them purchasing the product. But there was a problem. And the problem was is that the formula to Coke was a mystery, known only by the soft drinks founding family. And it was decided in Israel for it to be produced, it had to be acknowledged as kosher. But what do you do when it's all of a mystery? And can the mystery be revealed? And so Rabbi Lando said that he could not pronounce the drink kosher unless he and fellow rabbis knew the contents because the followers had to be certain that they can consume a product without violating the law. And so Coca-Cola wanted to extend its reach into new territories and, and the Jews certainly wanted it there and so uh, it at Koch's headquarters, it was decided to give the Jewish leadership the formula, known only by a few, the knowledge that Koch's competitors would die for. It was shared, and now it's provided. And what captures my attention at this point is that when you link together what Paul has written to the Ephesians in chapter 3 with what Paul is now saying to the pastor of the Ephesians in 1 Timothy 3 is that there is this mystery of the universe that has been revealed. And what we want to do is to demystify, if you will, that in a, a culture where people are continuously grappling with the questions that we have pondered just a few seconds ago, who am I? Why am I here? What's gone wrong? How can this be fixed? Where does all this lead? that what we want to be able to do is to, in essence, demystify the gospel for those that are longing to understand, to have a sense of clarity as to who God is, how God works, and how we can have a personal relationship with the one who's sovereign over all. What I want to be able to do with you this morning is to Look at this passage of scripture, if you will, from two avenues. And the first avenue comes out of verse 14 through verse 15. 
And uh, we're going to explore it in this way, that as you and I, as we explore the mystery of godliness, which points to God's grace. I want to begin here in these verses by looking at and noting with you the terms used in these verses, the terms used to describe the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to get a little traction and make our way into these verses. And so in verse 14, you, you start developing some traction when Paul, who is writing most likely from the area of Macedonia, uh, writes, I hope to come to you soon. Interests me that he is talking to Timothy personally. They have a personal friendship that runs deep. In Acts chapter 16, you pick up on the way in which they related to one another and how Timothy engaged in the various ministries and journeys of the Apostle Paul. They met in Lystra. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Which makes me think that if he had not been delayed, we would not have this letter. So once again, the delay is part of the design. God has intentionally delayed the Apostle Paul in a one-on-one -on -one with Timothy so that this letter would then be available to you and to me through all the ages. And if I delay so that you may know how one ought to behave. And what I want to do at this point with you, and look very carefully with me as we explore this together, is that I want to be able to draw out now three significant descriptions of the followers of Jesus Christ that are noted here in this particular verse. First of all, Notice that you and I, if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, are referred to as the household of God. Appears on the screen. Now, when we explore the idea of the household, you've got to go back into the Old Testament. Sure, you could go back to the house of David. But even before that, you can go back to Moses and how it was referred to there as as the house that he belonged to. Household is a metaphorical term that might be used to describe a family. And when you and I begin to think seriously about our relationship to God, what God has done is that he has positioned you and positioned me in the family of faith. That when you've repented of sin and put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, not only do you have a relationship with God through Christ, you have a relationship with the entire family that is devoted to Jesus Christ. Because the idea here is one of family. And so now the church, in many ways, is a family where we... We look out over each other. We keep our eyes open to one another, 
to where there's a need, to where someone's hurting. And this is why, and this is why we have life groups. And this is why we have various ministries like faith community nursing, so that we can reach in and be more effective as we reach out to touch and change lives, which is something like what love and action does for us as well. But this means then that we have, what we have is an eternal relationship furthermore, not only with Christ, but with one another. Because once you are born again, you and I are part of a family that lasts forever. And we relate to one another in the earthly because we're going to be relating to one another in eternity. And so we begin to understand better and better the dynamics of relationships as we work through how we demystify, if you will, how we open up the eyes of others so they have a better appreciation for the value of oneness that is found in the family of faith. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are one of the same accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, a thousand worshipers met together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, shall we call it, unified conscience, yet turn their eyes away from God to strive for their own form of closer fellowship. But God has a way of surprising us and introducing us to new family members that we would have never considered people that we would normally be able to relate to before we came to saving faith in Christ. I thought about that when I was gazing at a particular picture years ago. There's a picture that was taken in an art gallery. There's this older man, and he's looking carefully at the scene of Christ on the cross. And almost unknowingly, a photographer captured this. His lips parted as he uttered the words, I love Christ. Well, there was a stranger standing nearby who heard the man's words, stepped over and said, as he put his arm around him, my brother, I love him too. How does one who's a brother, who, or a stranger who you've never met before, is your brother? Unless there's this one who unifies us, draws us together. A third, a fourth, and others who were once strangers then found themselves standing around this painting as well. 
And underneath, and it appeared in a publication, was the uh, inscription, The Family of Faith. Someone that you didn't have much of a natural affinity toward prior to knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, all of a sudden becomes your brother or your sister because Jesus became your Savior. Because Jesus is his or her Savior as well. Means then we've got this wide range of eclectic personalities that are pulled together in this household of faith in not only a temporal but an eternal relationship. And heaven then becomes the family of the redeemed. The perfected family we're together with. But I want to notice with you that there's a second, there's a second term here that frankly leaps out of these, this verse because not only are we referred to as the household of God, which refers to family, but furthermore, it's the church of the living God. And what stands out here is that if you and I were to spend any time in Ephesus, even today, we would find the sense of idolatry is alive and well. I remember some of the family members and I, we were sitting in an amphitheater, which will be shown in just a few seconds. And I was leaning back and I was examining my phone when all of a sudden I heard this singing. And I looked up and here was a group of individuals decked in robes and they were singing a hymn to Zeus, which would have been in mythology if you studied that in, in your days in high school, perhaps. Well, they were immediately escorted away. But what stands out here is that Paul recognized the idolatry that was found in Ephesus. There is a statue, it was known as one of the seven wonders of the world, it's the statue of Diana. And people near and far would make their way to be able to, uh, to worship at this particular statue. But when, uh, what, what the Apostle Paul wants to do is to contrast what was happening in Ephesus with what is happening inside the heart of the true authentic um, follower of Jesus Christ by saying that this is the church of the living God that all other forms of worship that were found in Ephesus that were simply counterfeit to, to what Christianity is all about exhibited one particular trait and is that they were caught up in worshiping dead gods, dead goddesses. And now what Paul is doing is he is challenging the pastor to be able to interpret the culture accurately while simultaneously interpret the scriptures accurately and build a bridge from, from scripture to culture and do it in such a way that people become invigorated with the idea that we are the called out ones because that is what the church, Greek word ecclesia, is all about. And so he calls out the believer from the penalty of sin 
in order to call them into this culture to impact others for the cause of Jesus Christ because you are not serving a dead God, but a living God, you see. And you are alive. You're alive in Christ. So he tackles the issue of the matter of idolatry head on with the usage of that phrase. But then you're continuing to pull out the elements here that's found in verse 15, and you get to the third description. And I can see now the elders and the deacons, and they're leaning forward at this point because he's equipping them with memorable phrases of what Christianity is all about to impact the culture effectively. Not only are we described here as the household of God, and furthermore, the church of the living God, but thirdly, pillar and buttress of the truth. Now that speaks. Pillar, foundation, and these are, these are architectural metaphors. Foundation, it's essential to the building. And furthermore, pillar stands upright on the foundation as columns give the building its structure, its beauty. And the church as a pillar upholds the truth at this point, you see. And that's why we devote high levels of em emphasis upon teaching God's word here at Evangelical Free Church. We're committed matters of truth. Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. But not to be outdone, Lucy, in the Peanuts comic strip, first day of new school year, students were told to write an essay about returning to class. So in her essay, Lucy wrote these words and had it read out loud, vacations are nice, but it's good to get back to school. You can see Charlie Brown's eyebrows beginning to lift. As she goes on to say, there is nothing more satisfying to me than education. I look forward to a year of expanding my knowledge. And now this look of disbelief is on Charlie's face. As the teacher compliments her for her essay, but in the final frame, Lucy leans over and whispers to Charlie Brown, quote, you see, Charlie, after a while, you learn what sells, <laughs> unquote. And that concerns me in this culture. The Church of Jesus Christ is positioned in such a way, we're not here for what sells. We're here for what is truth. And so these are true descriptions. One, we're the household of God. We're family, eternally. Number two, the church of the living God, the called out ones, not to one who's dead, but one who's alive. Three days later, Christ raised from the grave. Thirdly, pillar, buttress of the truth. Now, once you and I begin to grasp this threefold description, 
Then we've got to position ourselves in Ephesus, where, in fact, Paul was ministering. So take a look now at what appears on the screen, because you now are joining me, and we're looking at this map, and there, there's Ephesus. And if you look at these other settings as well, you realize, if you've read the book of Revelation, these are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And what they were, you could say, is a postal route. And the letters were carried from one to the next to the next to the next, communicating God's truth. Ephesus was critical, strategic. It was a setting of 200 to 300,000 people. It was a setting very near the shoreline. Now it's about six miles in but at that time, positioned right on the shoreline. And what stands out? Well, if you were to join me in following the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, we might stop at this setting that appears next on the screen, because what comes next is a picture of an amphitheater. It's a theater in which we find that Paul, in fact, was dragged out in front of all, in front of others for sharing truths about the living God. And here, well, this is the area, in fact, where that little choir I told you about a few minutes ago appeared. Next scene. Well, the next one is a picture of the temple, a temple that, that would have worshipped, caused worship towards a false god. This is the sort of stuff now that Paul would have to address as you look at pillars and you look at foundations. And he's saying, I've got something better than this. And it's the people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's where truth resides. It is found inward to be able to express outward when you tell others about the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. There, then, is the threefold description, the terms used to describe the followers of Christ. Now, once you've grasped that and pulled that together, well, then you and I are on to the second major avenue, with, if you will, what I'm going to refer to as the pairs or pairings here used to describe the work of Christ. Because what is about to unfold are three pairings that help us to very succinctly describe what Jesus Christ did for you and for me and what this reveals about Jesus to you and to me. But notice how it begins. Great indeed, we confess. Now, what captures our attention at this point is that if you are reading in the book of Acts about their their worship in Ephesus of the false gods, great as Diana was the rallying cry. And so what now Paul is about to do is to challenge that with his own rallying cry. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And so now, you're back to that word mystery, which is found in Ephesians chapter 3 in particular. I was reading a science journal years ago, uh, some various scientific theories sponsored by Omni magazine. 
and they decided to have a little fun. And so they offered opportunities for prize as to what is considered to be the greatest mystery that you have ever encountered. And someone wrote in, he was the grand prize winner. When a cat is dropped, it always lands on its feet. When toast is dropped, it always lands with the buttered side facing down. I propose to strap buttered toast to the back of a cat. The tube will hover, spinning inches above the ground, and with a giant buttered cat array, a high-speed monorail could easily link New York with Chicago. Grand prize winner. Now, what we find here is Paul saying, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. This idea of confess is such that it's something that needs to be communicated. Communicate it with voice. Communicate it with a unified approach to things. And now notice how this begins. This stands out. Here then is the first of the three pairings. The first one, here it comes. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. This is the beginning of the Christmas story. Today, with this Christmas creed, we are building a bridge into the Advent season. What I want you to be able to spot with this opening phrase here, it does not read, he was born in the flesh, he was created in the flesh, but rather he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, Jesus Christ lived before Bethlehem. He's the great I am, you see. And so what we find is the proper use of words here. He was manifested in the flesh. Theologians refer to this as the incarnation of Christ. But you tie that together furthermore with the fact that he is vindicated by the Spirit. Now when you and I begin to think this through and develop this thing very carefully, we begin to see that what he's doing then, in essence, he is saying, I'm tying together here Bethlehem to what happened three days later after Calvary. When Jesus Christ was manifested or revealed in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, emphasizing his preexistence, such as in John 8, verse 58, we pull it together then with the fact that he was vindicated in the spirit, which means here is now what God is doing, is saying that this is who he claimed to be. This is the son of God. And the resurrection is validating his claims. He is being vindicated. And so when Pontius Pilate and others had him put to death, God the Father vindicates the claims of Jesus Christ by three days later raising him from the grave. And now you and I pull together, manifested in the flesh, but he's vindicated in the spirit. 
and you take a deep breath. And now you can almost picture at this point the elders and the deacons who in the earlier portion of 1 Timothy 3 are saying somehow i got to be able to not only communicate this but maintain this. These are the basics of what Christianity is all about. Vince Lombardi, great coach of the Packers of a prior era, he was known for his emphasis on fundamentals, wasn't he? And the team won championships year after year after year because they know, I think of Jerry Kramer, for example, knew how to block and tackle and execute better than anyone else. Picture Bart Starr's quarterback. But one time, there was a particular game that just simply fell apart on them, frustrated by their performance. Lombardi came into the locker room held up a football and simply said, gentlemen, back to basics. Gentlemen, this is a football. And he said it slowly and firmly because what he was now doing is taking a team that was marked by excellence back to basics. A congregation that is mocked by excellence still has to be masters of the basics. We have to be able to phrase things in such a way so that our, our extended family and our friends at work, uh, colleagues in the classrooms and so on, they're taken aback by the way in which you can very succinctly state how, how the the story of Bethlehem ties to the story of Good Friday and Easter and now you can almost sense the elders in 1 Timothy 3 and the deacons of 1 Timothy 3 leaning into this if you will he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit God is validating who Christ is what Christ came to do. But then a second combination because now it goes on to say vindicated by the spirit, yes, but furthermore now seen by angels proclaimed among the nations. Seen by angels the word seen here, parao, carries with the idea to visit or to be attended to. And so when Jesus Christ entered into Bethlehem, there was this angelic host on the scene informing the shepherds where to go to find this one born of Mary, yet manifested in the flesh. Tie it together now with the cross of Jesus Christ. We're at the tomb, empty. There are angels positioned to explain to Mary what has taken place here. He is risen, just as he said. This is the idea behind what's being described here in this phrase. But furthermore, it goes on to talk about 
proclaimed among the nations. So you, now you're pulling together the resurrected one standing with his disciples and say, uh, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, what he's doing with this second combination is that he is pulling together the supernatural seen by angels with the natural, the nations, creating, if you will, the merger, a bridge to better appreciate the way in which God is connecting with you, connecting with me. And if that's not enough, you come into this third of the three pairings, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, and I see now two different geographies. There's the earthly in the world, the heavenly taken up in glory, and this refers, of course, to the ascension of Jesus Christ. And you pull this together, and now what you and I have found is that in this Christmas creed, what we see is that God has communicated very effectively the way in which you and I are to communicate strategically to a world that is wondering continuously, why am I here? Who am I? What went wrong? How can this be fixed? Where is this world headed? It is the creed you have just seen here in these verses, which comes from a word in the Latin, believe. More than I believe that, I believe in. It's instructional. It's doctrinal. Creed. And I was thinking of that when I pulled out an army ranger's creed to himself as he was about to go into battle. Recognizing that I volunteered as a ranger, fully knowing the hazards of my chosen profession, I'll endeavor to uphold the prestige, honor of my ranger regiment. As a believer, and acknowledging the fact that as a ranger, a ranger is to be more elite, one who arrives at the cutting edge of a battle by land, sea, or air, I accept the fact that as a ranger, my country expects me to move farther, faster, fight harder than anyone else. I'm not going to let down my colleagues. My creed is to be mentally alert, physically strong and straight. I'll shoulder more than my share of task, whatever it might take, 100% and then some. I'll show the world that I am specially selected and a well-trained soldier. Energetically, I will meet the enemies of my country. I shall defeat them in the field of battle because I am so trained to do so. For surrender is not a ranger word. I will never leave a fallen comrade into the hands of the enemy. 
under no circumstances will I embarrass my country. And then he paused and then added, and what are the crucial points of being a good soldier for Christ? What's my creed? Number one, know who you're fighting for. Number two, know your enemy. Number three, know why you're here. Number four, stay unified against the enemy. Number five, take care of your wounded. I'm a ranger. I'm a Christian. And this is my creed. What's yours? Let's stand together. Father, thank you. You have found a masterful way to say a lot with a little. To take the extraordinary range of ministry that Christ provided. And to equip us with memorable statements and phrases. That becomes a creed. That equips us in the everyday battles of life. For the one watching online, for the, those in the prior service, those in this. If somewhere along the way the creed broke down, I pray we can start reciting it, relearning it, reapplying it. And for all, Father, all who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray they'll come to saving faith in the one who died for our sins. So Father, we're asking now that you take all that's here, apply it to life, as we've built a bridge today into the beginning of Advent next week, that through it all, you're honored, you're glorified, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.